0: is one of 15 psalms, uh, the songs of ascent that people sang on their way to Jerusalem. And we studied 121, we studied 131 last week, and today we go to 130. And today I wanted to really focus, if you have your Bible, this day I want you to encourage you to just take a look at it visually because Psalm 130 is broken up into four sections. And scholars have this fancy word, they call it strophes sections or strophes and these four strophes are written in a poetic style called parallelism and it's like this they have a phrase that begins and there's a second phrase that follows to either explain it contrast it or support it and so there's a lot of beauty in psalms you know for for us we have rub-a-dub-dub thanks for the grub our poetry is rhyming (laughs) for psalms This is their poetry where they break it up into groups. And within each strophe, section, there is a parallelism. And so, in Psalm 130, the parallelism is, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. So you hear that. God, I'm crying to you, second part, would you hear me? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who will stand? But there is forgiveness with you. So you see this contrast. And so, what's beautiful about Psalm 130 is this. If you look through right now, you'll notice something. There's a word that's repeated two times in every single section or strophe. Has anyone picked it out yet? It's two words in every single strophe. The word Lord is in. Two times in every single one of those. Oh Lord, oh Lord, verse one and two. Verse three, oh Lord, should you mark in degrees? Oh Lord. Verse four, five and six, the Lord, my hope is in, I soul waits for the Lord. Verse seven and eight, the final strophe, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord. And so all of these sections make up four different ideas and it seems like they don't even link together but when you take them as a package this psalm 130 as a whole becomes a beautiful picture of god that the psalmist is declaring to us and so i want to look at that and each of the four themes so the first theme is this Uh, so can we get out of the navigation in the keynote so i could click you get out of it. Okay, got it. Okay, here we go. So Here's the first section. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. I mean, if we're doing a Bible study, just looking at that, what's the immediate sense you get about this psalmist? What's his condition? Yeah, he's struggling. He's in trouble. He's crying out from the depths, hear me. He's desperate. And the word depths right here, the word depths, is only used five times in the entire Bible. And it's a word connoting urgency because of a death or a destruction. So he's crying out in absolute desperation out of death or destruction. And at this point, we don't know exactly what his particular situation is, but we do see that he's in trouble. And we see the parallelism here. I cry to you, and here's a response. Hear my voice. Out of the depths and destruction, I cry out to you. My hope is that, God, you would hear me. And a lot of us right now here are in that depths. Some of you may feel, I know there's a family that I've been talking with this week because of their health problems. Every night we're getting an update. And the way that the communication is coming is, please pray desperately for her. She is really, really struggling. And so there is this earnest yearning and crying out. And so crying out is something we don't do well in the modern days unless we're really in trouble. Uh, A lot of us, uh, how many of you do this? Just be honest. Hey, how are you? And you say, Oh, I'm doing good. And then you stop for a minute and you say, Wait a minute, I'm not doing that good. Why did I say that? Have you ever done that? Like, right? It's like, that's how we break the ninth commandment all the time. Like, Jason, how are you doing? doing so well and i go in my car i'm crying like no i'm not um and so we we don't show it we don't cry we don't really cry out often do we unless we're in a really desperate situation in in fact it looks primitive we don't want to be we want to look sophisticated we go to church and make sure everyone knows my life is put well together and it's really not and so that's why i appreciate psalm 130 i don't know at this point if he's in grave danger or he's just in general danger But he is crying out to God. And so what we know about the psalmist is he has this humility. We talked about that. This humility to see himself as a child and to see God as his parent. And so we must have this approach to God in prayer. So this first section, first strophe, I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. We see his desperation and humility. Second strophe, second theme. It goes to this, The God Who Forgives. It's the real title. Uh, like, Second Strophe appears to quickly change the subject. He goes from, God, I'm in trouble, hear my cry, to, to what? He goes to, if you, O Lord, should keep your iniquities, my iniquities, and remember them, who can stand? So he changes the subject, it seems like, but it'll all come together. Uh, like many things in life, we take a lot of things for granted, um, how many of you really thank God that you have a pair of socks? Like, like this morning, you were like, gosh, you know, it's nice to have a pair of socks. And, you know, I could, they match. That's great. You know, so we, don't, we don't think about these things, you know. It's, it's nice to be in a sanctuary. We have air conditioning. I, I, when we don't have it, we miss it. But when we're here, we're like, all right. So in life, one of the things that I think we take for granted is that we have a God who is described and in his nature is a God who forgives. I think we take this for granted because we heard it growing up. But a God who forgives. And to contrast that, I wanted to share with you, have you ever thought about what other religions do with sin? What do other major religions, how do they approach the problem of sin? So for example, Buddhism, how do they deal with sin? Do they have a God or does Buddha forgive? So Buddhism, there is no forgiveness of sin at all. In Buddhism, there's karma. So what that says is, you live your life, if you're good and you sin, or you sin, you will reap the result. And you will get what you deserve. So when people say stuff like, oh, karma's going to get you, that's actually a very Buddhist take. You know, someone cuts me off. I hear this from Christians. They're like, karma. Uh, You know, and so Buddhism is this. What do you do with your sin? You, You work on it. Get yourself better. Improve on it. You know, let your good outweigh the bad and slowly improve yourself. So where does Buddha come into this? Buddha doesn't judge sin. What Buddha does is he helps you to live a life that you need to go. So that when you get reincarnated or when you, when you get to a enlightenment, which is the goal of perfect peace, you won't sin anymore. So just working on yourself is the answer in Buddhism. That's how they treat sin. How about Hinduism? Hinduism has 10,000 gods, over 10,000 gods. And each of their gods address sin differently. And if we were to incorporate any of this, um, I think the church would actually be packed. You heard me correctly. I think if we incorporated Hinduism and the way they address sin, churches would be packed. Because one of the ways they get forgiven is they have to go to worship in order to be forgiven. I worship you, you forgive me. I guarantee you when people are condemned with guilt and we tell them the only answer for your sin is you need to come to church on Sundays, this room would be packed. Because Hinduism teaches you got to work at it. Another God says you need to pray a particular magical prayer 40 times. I mean, even the Lord's Prayer, as beautiful as it is, saying that 40 times, that's that's a challenge. And others say you need to fast or go to a particular lake and wash yourself. In there to get your sins. So you see a pattern. These two other major religions, sin is addressed by how you respond to it. Lastly, Islam. How does Islam deal with sin? They don't. God outweighs your sin. At the end of your life, you're before Allah, and all your good deeds are weighed against all your bad deeds. And if your good deeds are greater than your bad deeds, good job. If your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds, you will be punished. And so they are purely works-driven. And it's totally about how much good they try to do while they have all this evil. And, you know, in a court of law, if I was a serial killer and killed, like, 40 people, but the rest of my life from here I live like an angel, even the court of law would say, would they declare me innocent? Like, Jason lived such a good life. You know, he was bad. He killed 40 people, but look at him. He's an angel. He's a pastor now. Let's, what, what a great guy. Would the court say that? No. And so the problem with these major religions, how they deal with sin is they deal with how we live, but they don't deal with the sin already committed. So Jews and Christians have this, and they both agree, Judeo-Christian. Psalm 51.5, let's read it together. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. So the psalmist writes something important here. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Islam says you're a sinner because you sin. The Bible says you're born a sinner. That's your nature. And a lot of us today, we think we're good, self-righteous, upright people because we don't sin. Romans 3.10, Paul writes, let's read it together. There is no one righteous, not even one. No one pastor the president mother teresa no one is righteous what is he talking about the nature of our being is sin it's not that we committed sin but we keep committing sins because we're sinners and so the problem we have in america in 2022 in these two verses is this we no longer believe this a lot of us believe we have intrinsic goodness you know i'm not perfect But look, I'm not. I'm not that jerk over there. You know, I I'm not perfect, but I go to church. I read the Bible. I know the Bible. I've been. I was baptized here. I'm a good person. And we don't believe this. We don't believe that we are sinners by nature. We actually believe our confidence comes from our living. So this dulls this conscience in us to say, "Gosh, I need to be forgiven." And one of the reasons why I don't think we have joy in the church is because we have lost this idea that we've been forgiven for the terrible sins in us and we've committed. That freedom gives us joy. So let me give you some contrast. I was watching the news this week in New York City. They arrested a, a gang member who punched a guy and killed him. And so they arrested him, and the chief goes on the news, WPIX, the news station, and he says, these criminals get arrested. They get out right away. They call their friends and say, hey, I'm not not making this up. They didn't do anything. Come over here. Let's keep mugging others. Join me. They're not doing anything about it. So what has happened to them? Maybe the first time they mug someone, Oh, that was bad, but look, we got away with it. And now their conscience has become dulled to a point where now they are pathologically, they are sociopaths <laughs> breaking and hurting people. This is what happens when we look at our sin nature and we forget that we are sinners. We get dulled in our senses, we, we, we take God's forgiveness for granted. So our desire to be forgiven is dull because we don't really feel the need to be forgiven. You know, I'm not perfect, but everyone's doing it. You've heard that one too. Everyone's doing it. So the key with that dullness is forgiveness, going back to recognizing our true nature. And I, the first two songs that we sang today were very fitting. Self-righteousness creeps into the church, and we feel, you know, I've been living a pretty darn good life. I've been... I haven't caused trouble, and I haven't really drank, and I haven't really cussed anymore. And I'm a pretty good darn guy. And what happens is our confidence is what? It's in our behavior rather than in Jesus who gives us forgiveness. So the psalmist writes this. Let's read it together. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Let's look at the first part. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? We call that a rhetorical question. (laughs) If you, God, showed me every single one of my sins and I stood before you in your glorious presence, would I be able to stand? The rhetorical question is no one can stand. And the psalmist has this awareness. No one could go before God. Who could stand before you, God? literally no one the only way we go to the presence of god is because of god's mercy to make a way for us to approach god so progressives and conservatives all get this wrong progressives say we could approach god you know why because god made me the way i am and we define everything we we redefine things we say we take the bible and we this is such a pet peeve of mine and they they analyze it and interpret it in the way that fits them so like oh this god delights in this sin god made us this way so how could he we be wrong and so that is completely unorthodox progressives i mean conservatives we do it this way ready we have the right doctrine we know the bible because we know the bible you know we, we are acceptable to god and so we live as if this biblical doctrine is what justifies us both of them are wrong when we go before god as sinners there is only one reason we could stand before a holy god the blood of jesus christ covers us period it is nothing that i could do so we live in a world where we we don't think we're sinners because of our behavior or we don't think we're sinners because of our belief and we all have it wrong so in this parallelism we see this Oh, Lord, if you were to remember all of my sins, who could stand? Part two, the parallelism is, but with you, there, his only hope is this. There is forgiveness. And so can we breathe a sigh of relief when we hear that? With God, there is forgiveness. <sighs> Hallelujah. Why do we have mercy? Why do we have any hope whatsoever if we're born as sinners? Because our God is a God who forgives. The Jews heard this this way. Remember what the Jews did to get their sins washed? They would take a lamb, go to the temple. They would bleed it out, and that lamb would represent their sins. And this lamb took the price of my sin. How do Christians do it? On Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Let me read it for us. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Waiting for that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We don't have altars anymore. In the Christian church, did you know that? We don't have an altar. We don't call it an altar. You know what we call this? A baptiz- oh, no, A communion table. Because there is no longer a need for altar. Because Jesus Christ, the final sacrifice, has finished the job. And so this is the good news. God's forgiveness is complete. It's motivated by his love, and it's a grace. And so this is the reason why the psalmist continues, and he says, oh, he says this. He could say, I wait for this Lord. My soul waits. Why? Because he's a forgiving God. And in this word I hope, in his word I hope, my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Even in the depths of his darkness, of his gloom, he can have hope in waiting because this is a God who forgives. And it takes us to the last one, 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Hope in the Lord. Why? Not only is this God a forgiving God, but this God has steadfast love for you and me. As we read this, now we know what his depth means. Why is a psalmist in the depths? This depth is not just I'm in financial trouble. This depth is not because no one likes me and I'm having problems in my life. This depth is specifically this psalmist is in a situation caused by the iniquities and sin of him and of this world but god is a god who has delivered him out of that this is the god who gives us his sacrifice and through his true love he makes this way possible as i was preparing for this i i thought it was reminded of this story and i wanted to kind of capture this picture of our god who forgives and the connection here is the god makes an incredible sacrifice how many of you heard of the story of the train switch operator? So this, it's a fictional story, I think. So one day, there was a train switch operator, and there was a bridge. So they that bridge turns for the ships to pass under the river, and they turn back. And one day, you know, this, this dad of a young boy, like four years old, doting father, um, having lunch with his family, he's like, I need to go back to work. So he goes back to work, and he gets a signal that a, that a train is coming, so switch the train back, track back. So as he's switching the train track back, there was, a, there was a mechanism failure. The tracks wouldn't line up. The train was going full pace, and it had no way to wo- be warned that you need to stop. The bridge is not ready. So the train operator, switch operator, goes out and gets a pole, and he pulls the tracks to alignment, and he's holding it there so the train could pass. From the back, he hears something to his horror. It's his four-year-old boy running towards him on the track. And the dad is trying to say, stop, go. But the sound of the incoming train is so loud, the boy doesn't hear. And in that moment, the train switch operator has to make a choice. Do Do I let... 200 people in the train perish in the river to save my son or do i have to let my son be sacrificed for this it's a horrible dilemma and as he weeps and anguish cries he pulls the track together and the train goes the horror of this is that in one one movie that they made to capture this story was people in the train were laughing playing, sleeping, they had no clue what sacrifice was just made for them to live. They had no idea while the father grieves the loss of his son. And so that picture, that story is astounding because it's the story of a glimpse of what it could have looked like (laughs) and meant for God to give up his only son to forgive people who have sinned against him. And so the operator clearly is the father who gives his son. Jesus is the son who offered himself so that we could live. And the final questions we have is why do we, where do we get reverence and awe for God? And this is in that question in verse 3 and 4. Those who are forgiven because they see God is a God who forgives, therefore we fear. And that word fear is reverence and awe for God. I think when we come together in sanctuary realizing that we don't come because of our own merits but because there is a god who forgives we have this joy we have this fear and reverence for the lord to be able to give god this worship i want to end with this in luke 24 44 48 we see this verse and brings it all together Jesus says, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I am still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the what? The forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of these things. This is Jesus speaking after his resurrection. And he's saying, the message I want you, the church, to share, it's not merely that God loves them. It's that Jesus Christ, I came, I died, I rose again for the forgiveness of all sins for all the nations. This is why you and I exist as a church. This is why we gather to worship. And this is why we need to be out there and proclaim this good news. That the psalmist of 130 is pointing to Jesus Christ, who is the forgiver of all sins. And so as we gather here, I want us to find joy in this idea. Who are we that we could stand before God? We are the forgiven in Christ. We are the redeemed. We are the ones that God has called to say, I love you with a steadfast love. And therefore we stand before you let's pray let's take a moment now and make this a time of prayer of confession that god neither wants us to ignore our sin to look over our sin or, or to be in denial of it, but to just in confidence approach him with everything and say, God, I'm only here because of your grace. I'm only here because of your great sacrifice. Thank you that with you there is forgiveness. And find peace in the one who gives this forgiveness. Just take a moment and then I'll close this in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the reminder that we see a nature of you throughout all of scripture, that you're just, you're not merely a holy God who enjoys punishing and judging, but you're also just and merciful. We thank you, God, that we see a God that we could wait for, that we could find hope in, even in the depths of our lives, even when things are at the lowest point, because you are so gracious. Lord, may the words of the psalmist be our words. May the heart of the psalmist crying out to you be our ability to cry out. Lord, draw us near. Draw us near to you by your grace. Remind us that we do not find righteousness by our own works, but by your gift. And help us to treasure Christ always so that we would, he would be our joy. And that our songs would be with gladness. These things we pray in your son's name. Amen. As Ed Headley comes up to give us our prayer.